and amen. Thank you so much for being a part of this incredible day in the life of First Baptist Church. Thank you, Michael, and the team for leading us in worship this, this morning. God does indeed uh, desire and deserve praise from all creatures uh, of, of his own and, and from every nation, tribe, and tongue. He desires that every person uh, from all corners of the earth will declare his praise. And that's why we're here today, that that, that, that vision, that that goal will be uh, realized. What a great day in the life of First Baptist Church. This annual missions conference is my first time to uh, be, be a part of it and to be able to uh, uh, be, uh, witness what happens today. I'm so excited, not only for the value that this day has in and of itself, but uh, back when James and I got together a couple of months ago and, and looking through the spring calendar and, and he was telling me about this Day, the missions conference day, the faith promise offering uh, day. I began, of course, to think about what it would mean in the context of our intentional interim ministry uh, together. And as you know, we've committed as a church in, prep- in preparation for uh, the, the, the search and, and call uh, for our new pastor that we would be personally, corporately prepared for that uh, moment. And to do that, walking through these five focus points mission and, and, and heritage leadership, connections, and future. And so we've been working in, on heritage and, and working on uh, mission and uh, again about to uh, begin really an emphasis on connection. And when I realized that that would uh, happen right about the time of the missions conference, I thought, well, this is just uh, perfect. And just praise the Lord for uh, his, his working in that, that we would uh, need to do something exactly like we're doing today, even in the context of our intentional interim ministry work. The connection focus point. Three kind of main goals. First of all, as individual, that you would sense God's call on your life and you would uh, understand how he's created and gifted and shaped you for the purpose of doing ministry right here through the church. Uh, that we would see how God has placed each one of us in the community where we live, where we work, uh, where we have recreation for the purpose of, of scattering this body throughout Bologna uh, to have gospel impact. And then thirdly, identifying our ministry partners locally, nationally, and internationally. How has God so graciously gifted us with like-minded brothers and sisters all over the world whom we can partner with to take God's incredible gospel even in the farthest, most hard-to-reach places on earth? And that's what we're celebrating today. And that's what we're also being challenged with today and asking God, how would you have me be a direct Part. So uh, as we continue through the course of these next weeks, thinking about all those things related to connections, uh, I can't think of a better way to kick it off than for this day, uh, asking God uh, to uh, just, just to speak to our hearts on how he would invite us to partner with him in this kingdom work. Brother James is going to come and uh, prepare us just a little bit more as we get ready for God to speak to us through the preaching of his word. Thank you so much, Brother David. Uh, Before I introduce our special guest this morning, I just wanted to take a few moments to uh, talk to you about faith promise. I know that this is a concept that some of you may not be familiar with. We have a lot of new faces in our church uh, since last year. And so just let me spend just a few moments about this. If you're not familiar uh, or need a reminder, this is the way that we give to missions here at First Baptist Church. We support the ongoing mission of Jesus Christ around the world, and at the end of the service, I want to give you a heads up now, but at the end of the service, we'll be asking you to turn in a faith promise commitment card. Now, you'll find that in your bulletin inside the missions, or around the missions brochure. You can go and take it out and, and be thinking about that if you haven't already filled that out. We will be asking you to turn this in at the very end of the service. And uh, it's a commitment that shows what you'll be giving in support of our missionary partners for this next year, the next 12 months. Now, a couple things I want to point out about this card. Uh, first of all, you will not find a place for your name on it. Okay, so uh, we, we are not going to track you down and uh, ask you why you haven't fulfilled your commitment. This is a commitment between you and God alone. Uh, we... We recognize that as such, and uh, this is not something that's known within your church family. It's just something that you're going to be stepping out in faith and committing to the Lord to give to global outreach this year. You're literally making a faith promise, a promise in faith to say, Lord, 
I feel like you're leading me to give this amount, and I'm stepping out in faith for you to provide that means to give. And he has been incredibly faithful over the years. This church, again, celebrating 30 years of giving, uh, this small town of Bologna has, this year, will we'll be at $2.9 million, just over 30 years. It's just an incredibly mind-blowing thing to be able to be at that level at this uh, mid-sized church. It is an act of faith that is dependent on God's goodness and his provision alone for you to step out in faith to uh, allow men and women, boys and girls around the world who desperately need to hear the name Jesus. Um, It's the greatest gift in the world, and, and Jesus is the only hope for this world. Amen. The second thing uh, you'll notice is that there's all sorts of different amounts on here, all the way down to a dollar, uh, even upwards, uh, fill in the blank. And what that's signifying is that it's up to you and the Lord according to your means. I know children that give monthly out of their allowance. Uh, I know that uh, many of you are on fixed incomes that, that give sacrificially. Others give tremendous amount of, of money, work, money to the work, but... The point is that we all give. We all give. Um, someone said, well, how, how do I give? I mean, it, it literally could be a dollar a month. And you think that doesn't make a big difference, but it does. It all adds up. It's all about cooperation, right? We're cooperating together as a body of Christ here and with those believers around the world. And I guarantee you, as you start giving systematically and faithfully to the Lord's work, that the Lord will grow that desire in you and that connection with his work and you'll see that that desire to give even more over the years as the Lord continues to provide so finally um, faith promise is an offering that is set apart from our normal tithes and offerings that go to support this local ministry here at First Baptist we certainly want you to start with that base of tithing to support this ministry here the church cannot exist without your faithful giving uh, but this is something above and beyond that, that all of our mission giving comes separate from a regular budget out of faith promise. For those of you who have been giving faithfully, I want to say thank you for my heart. Thank you for, for giving sacrificially over the years. Continue to do so. The Lord will bless. Perhaps uh, we all need a challenge this year to give a little bit more. Whether you're giving already $400 a month and maybe you want to bump it up to 425 or you're giving 800 and you go to 815 or maybe you're at $10 a month and you, you're saying, Lord, I think I can give more. I can give $11 a month. It doesn't matter. Let's, let's grow that faith. Let's grow that vision because we want to be able to, to reach more and more people with the gospel. And we know how the world works. It takes funding to make that happen. All right? Um, now, again, let me remind you, this is between you and the Lord. The reason we ask you to fill out this card is twofold. One, uh, it does allow us to budget for the next year. We need to have an estimation of what's going to be given so we can make sure that we have all our missionary partners taken care of, but also allows us to prayerfully consider those, those many people that God continues, thank the Lord, God continues to call into missionary service that are looking for partners. So uh, by filling out the card, it helps us to budget for that for 2020 to hopefully take on more. But also I feel like it, it's a tangible uh, step of you filling out a card, turning in, it's a reminder between you and the Lord of the commitment you're making today. Again, it's not to us, it's to the Lord. So again, we'll be receiving these at the end of the service. For now, I want to go ahead and switch gears and introduce you to our, our special guest this morning. Uh, here in just a minute, we'll, we'll show a video of theirs before he comes up and speaks. But many of you already know Dr. Bob Graham and his wife, Joanna. Uh, they and their family have been faithfully serving on the missions field as a family. They're, they're a team that worked together on the mission field of South Africa for so many years. We as First Baptist Church have personally partnered with them for at least 14 of those years. It's been quite a while since he's been with us. He's been hard at work. I know he was at a, the last missions conference he was here was 2011. Uh, and we're so happy to have him with us this morning. We've kept in constant contact through prayer letters. We want to make sure you're on that, that email list to, to keep up with their ministry there. But uh, we're so thankful that he's here. He BBFI missionaries to, to South Africa, but uh, they have a special ministry that they run there called the Children's Resiliency Project that 
we mentioned in the video, and then he'll be able to tell you more about that here in a moment. But let's go ahead and watch the video, and then after the video, Brother Bob is going to come up, and at that time, you please make him feel welcome, all right? My mother died. Uh, why, did, why do you think she died? I don't know why. Well, why did your father die? With HIV AIDS. Oh, my mother passed away. My other sister. My brother passed away. AIDS took away the people we, we love the most. Africa. This place is simply one of the most magnificent places in the world. Nowhere else can one find such diversity in the landscape, people, and animals as here. However, there is another aspect of Africa that not many people wish to discuss. That is the devastating effect of AIDS. If you just ask people in the community, everyone who employs someone, everyone who knows someone, somebody's died of HIV, someone's taking more time off for another funeral, the, the cemeteries are all full, the uh, funeral parlors are all doing roaring trade, especially in the black communities. hundreds of government and faith-based organizations, most of which offer only short-term solutions, are attempting to address this crisis. One organization that does, however, offer a long-term solution is the South African Children's Resiliency Project, an IRS-approved 501c3 public charity. I would like to introduce you to its executive director, Dr. Bob Graham. It's easy to get discouraged thinking about the devastating effects of AIDS in Africa, especially when thinking about the millions who've been affected. There's a Chinese proverb, however, that basically states, to move a mountain, one must move one stone at a time. This is KwaZulu-Natal, the epicenter of the AIDS crisis, not only in South Africa, but also the world. It is here with the help of churches, businesses, and individuals that we plan to help these townships that have been decimated by the disease. The basic steps of the project involve, first of all, finding proper caregivers for our children. We use churches that have national pastors to find these individuals, who mainly consist of African grandmothers. This is Granny Zwane. What she can do that we can't do as Americans is raise these children to love Jesus in their own culture. <laughs> Next, with financial assistance from churches, businesses, and individuals in the United States, we have been able to construct these beautiful three-bedroom brick homes. The cost to construct these homes has been $35,000 and another $5,000 to completely furnish them. The most exciting aspect of the project, with the help of South African Social Services, we place six children into each of these homes. If, if private people don't do it, if the church doesn't do it, it's not going to happen. The government is not doing it. Um, perhaps some of their intention is to do it, but they can't meet the need. They don't even know the need. The only way people are going to get any kind of help is that if um, private individuals, non-government organizations and churches help. There are several ways that you can get involved with the Children's Resiliency Project. Your church, business or family can sponsor the construction of a project home, 
sponsor the furnishings of a project home. Faithfully project by donating to the project's general fund. Encourage your church, business or other family members to become involved. Inform other people in your community about the crisis in Africa and encourage them to get involved with the project. Pray for wisdom on our lives and the Africans who work with us to reach these children. I know my Lord, he'll make a way for me. As you look at those numbers, uh, I'm going to ask you to do a couple things. First of all, try not to think about the numbers, um, because to most people that's just a number with several zeros beside it, and it's not going to affect your day-to-day -day life anyway. We're still going to go eat lunch. We're still going to go home, take a nap. Some of us will. Some may go try to find road runners. I might try to do that this afternoon. But resist the urge to think about the numbers, but I'm also going to ask you to resist the urge to look away because that's the easy thing to do. In uh, 1999, I had that opportunity to look away. I had conducted some research in South Africa. We were part of a team uh, collecting some data on the uh, AIDS prevalency. We also brought some mission teams to South Africa to uh, do some short-term mission projects. And I got exposed to something I'd never seen before church in my life, and I never want to see it again. I got exposed to child-headed households. I'd never seen that before. I know in America we have what we call latchkey children. You know, parents are working, they're at home to fend for themselves for a bit. A child-headed household is where there are no parents uh, because the crisis in Southern Africa is so gargantuan that uh, there's nowhere for these kids to go. And the first time I walked into a home and a community leader said, now these kids here, they live by themselves. Now, now I want you to just understand, I'm just a normal Joe like you guys. You know, I, I, I'm not from Arkansas. My parents lived in Hot Springs for a while, but I'm, I was born in Texas. I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm just a normal person. I'm not Mother Teresa. I'm not somebody, you know, I'm just, a, just I, matter of fact, I'm a zero with the circle rubbed out. I mean, that's, that's how I feel sometimes. But let me tell you how, how it affected me as a child of God. When I saw that, it affected my whole being, and my, uh, emotionally, physically, that physically I had trouble breathing. And because uh, I saw these kids, and there were no toddlers there, but there was about an eight-year-old girl, and there was a couple of little siblings that might have been under five. And that gentleman told me that they lived by themselves. And I said, my goodness. I said, I said, now the first question that came to my mind, church, is where is the government? And by the way, I've learned over the years, that's the worst question you can ask at any time in your life is where is the government? Here in the United States, South Africa doesn't matter. It's not a government's responsibility. In the you know, they do what they do. And how's a government like South Africa, which is a developing country, how are they going to attend to 2.9 million orphan children? And in particular, South Africa has an estimated 500,000 families that are child-headed. What's a government like that going to do? They barely can make ends meet. They have 37% unemployment. And then I got to thinking, you know, if that happened to the United States, I think we would fail as well. If you don't believe me, all I got to do is look at our various crises that we've had over the last 20 years and how have we fared. I mean, you guys are familiar with Katrina. My parents lived in Gulfport. I was in Baton Rouge and we did. If I had to give us a report card, I'd have to give us an F. I mean, people died on the streets in New Orleans. I mean, I... And so, so what I'm getting at is that's the wrong question to ask. I thought I had a better question, church. I said, where is the church of Jesus Christ? I was getting warmer. Where is the church of Jesus Christ? Because I don't care what passage you look in the scriptures, you'll never, ever read a passage that this type of crisis is a governmental responsibility. 
but it is a church responsibility because the Bible's very clear about this stuff. If you read the book of James, if you can, first of all, if you can handle the book of James, okay? I know I'm in a church, a lot of believers in here, uh, and when I say I say it, I don't take it lightly. book of James, I tell you what, he's very offensive. Uh, if you had James preaching a, a revival here, you guys would not come back. I, I wouldn't because he's in your face. You know what? He basically, the whole premise of the book is this. Talk is cheap. Right? You ever read that book? Uh, you know, not, if you're a first-time visitor, we're not, I'm not going to read the book of James because it's offensive. Because he'll say, listen, you say you preach the gospel, I live the gospel. You follow me? Faith without works is what, church? Now, in a Baptist church, boy, you don't want to say that too loud. But it is. It is. There's no way you can convince a lost and dying world about the importance of the gospel unless you live it. You follow me? You know, show me your faith. Because after all, James says the devils believe in God. And they what? They fear, they tremble. I know a lot of Christians today, they don't tremble at the thought of God. I do. I do. I'm not going to use the vernacular because you'd think I'd, you'd, you'd, you'd kick me out of here if I told you what I really thought. But let me tell you, get close. It scares me. The thought of God that one day I will stand before an almighty God to give an account of my life to him is a scary proposition. And so at that point, instead of saying, where's the government? Where's the church of Jesus Christ? The Holy Spirit says, where are you? What are you doing about it? So he got personal. And then I spoke to my wife and I said, listen, I have no peace. I said, we've got to do something. So in 2004, my wife and I, by faith, we moved to South Africa. And we said, we're going to start doing something. Now, there's 2.9 million orphaned and abandoned children in South Africa. 500,000 families that are child-headed. What, what are two people from America going to do? Are we going to go over and save Africa? No. But the Bible never commanded us to do that. The, the Bible commanded us to go. And that's what we did. And what we did is we just started by faith saying, listen, we can't save all these children, but we're going to save as many as we can. And there are people that go, and there are people that send. And during this mission uh, a portion of this, this uh, uh, month, I can't stress it enough. I'm not your pastor. You're, I know you're looking for one. This is the most important thing you can do. You know why? Because this is seed, seed money. And let me tell you something. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of people in here, and they're not spring chickens. I'm looking around. You know, you're like, you know, I mean, I'm not, listen, if I, if I offend you, I'm like, I'm like Walmart. I'll take it back. You know, you don't need a receipt. <laughs> Now, if the word of God offends you, I can't do anything about that. But let me just say this. How many of y'all believe in the judgment seat of Christ? Can I, can I get an amen? Is it real? Are we just hedging, hedging our bets? Okay, I know, I don't know you do a lot of gambling in, you know, Arkansas, but, you know, I think a lot of Christians hedge their bets. You know what I mean? Just in case <laughs> there's a judgment seat, I want to do a little bit. You know what I mean? So that when I do stand before Jesus Christ, that I say, well, listen, I did a little bit. You know, I hope you're not that type of Christian that you're hedging your bet just in case. I hope you're all in. Because there are those people who do believe in God. They don't think there's a God. See, a lot of people are in church nationwide. By the way, just, just pull the plug when it's time to go. Because you know, this is what I do. There are some, there are, I'd say, I don't know what the percentage is, but we say the vast majority of people attending church this morning are hedging their bets. You know why? Because that's all they do. They don't do anything else during the week. They go to church. I did it. I went to church. So what? What good was that? It's what you do when you leave the doors of this church that matters for eternity. You got me? Because all this, this is like a locker room, right? I, I coached, you know, pardon the analogies, but I coached basketball. We didn't play the basketball games in the locker room. We had to go out. And the church is just to get us fired up. So when we walk out those doors, we can do business with the world. And what even matters more is for that day. Because here's, here's what I've been led to believe about the judgment seat of Christ. I grew up in Sunday school. I grew up in a church like, like this one. You know, I memorized the verses. But I always find it fascinating that I'd memorize these verses and I'd go, hmm, why didn't we learn the verse following this verse? We always learn these two, but why? And when you take a look, and we'll start here, but we're not, we're not finished here. Because when you talk about faith promise, boy, it hit, it hit me hard. Because I'm telling you, church, it's never too late to put seed in the ground. Do you follow me? And the Bible talks about all these, uh, these uh, metaphors regarding sowing and reaping. 
And I know this, when it comes to sowing for the kingdom, on the way to, listen, on the way to my, my deathbed, I'm going to reach in my pocket, I'm going to have a little bit of seed, and as I go across to wherever I'm going to be laid to rest, I'm going to start dropping some more seed. Because I'm telling you, if you're not in the ground, if you woke up this morning and you didn't have a police chalk line around your body, it's never too late to reach in your pocket and throw some seed. You follow me? We live in a farming community. You understand the word of God when it comes to this. And let me tell you why it's important. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I didn't plan to go here, but I just felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, listen, this is a faith promise. Uh, they're, they're, they're looking for a pastor. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's about the judgment seat. I'm not going to talk about it because I, I don't, I'm just going to briefly touch on it because I'm going to be a blessing to you. You're going to be glad you came to church today. I promise by the end you're going to say, listen, that guy's a little bit crazy, but he was right. I'm glad I showed up today. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 10, this is what I, I've learned this passage. I memorized it in Sunday school. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether it's good or bad. Now, I learned that in Sunday school, and I memorized that verse. And I've been led to believe that the judgment seat of Christ was going to be like an award ceremony. That we as Christians, because we don't have the great white throne judgment where we're going to be separated from God for eternity. We've been saved. So we're, we're free. You know what I mean? We're free in Christ. We're at liberty. All right? And one of these days, we're going to go out and we're going to go to this award ceremony. And they're going to call our names. And we're going to be able to, you know, we're going to get these crowns. And we're going to take these crowns. We're going to lay them at the feet of Jesus Christ. And the worst case scenario is you just don't get a couple crowns. You know, you're at the judgment seat of Christ and you go, hey, I didn't really do much, but I've been to some award ceremony. You know, not everybody gets a prize. You know, now I know in our time today, everybody's got to be a winner, you know, uh, 12th place, 15th place. You know, I'm like, no, there's only one winner, you know, but we're trying to make everybody happy. So the worst case scenario is we as Christians, we get to the judgment seat of Christ. We just don't have a lot of crown. Okay, we can live with that. But then I read this other verse right after it, and I said, man, it says verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I've never been to an award ceremony in my life where the word terror was used. You follow me? That doesn't sound like an award ceremony. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like a day of reckoning. Are you with me, church? So all I'm saying is that you have an opportunity to get some seed in the ground. Because a number of years ago, you know what this church did? I don't know why. It might have been, I don't know who I talked to, but somebody said, you know, we're interested in what, we're, what you're doing. And they invited me to come here. And I came here and I presented our vision because we didn't have any houses, we didn't have anything. But you're a former pastor. So you know what, Bob, we're going to do as a church? We're going to give you and Joanna some seed money. Now, there's accountability. Now, this church doesn't, you know, there are some churches, they give you $25, and they want $500 worth of accountability. And I said, you know, keep your $25. And then there are churches like this that just give graciously, and they just want about $25 worth of accountability. I mean, because all this church has ever asked me to do is every couple of months, would you just send us a letter and tell us how it's going? You follow me? But he said, Bob, what we're going to do is we're going to give you and Joanna some seed money, and we want you to represent our people Okay, in Valonia, Arkansas, in this area, and represent us in South Africa, and we want you to plant some of that seed. And as that seed begins to, uh, as you begin to water, and, and there's so many people involved, one of these days gonna, there's going to be a harvest, a harvest of souls. And we want you to be able, when you get that fruit, we want you to be able to share it with us. And so today, that's what I want to do. In John chapter 9, we read a powerful I mean, this is one of my favorite passages in all the scripture. In John chapter 9, beginning with verse 1, and we'll be about 10 minutes. I'm just going to share, uh, give you a testimony of one of our children, and then we're going to be dismissed. But in John chapter 9, it says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, don't ever think that the disciples were very spiritual because they were not. The more you read about the disciples, the more you realize that they were a bunch of knuckleheads. They just, they didn't get it. 
If you don't believe me, recall when Jesus died, after Jesus died on the cross. They no longer have Jesus around. So the disciples looked to their fearless leader, Peter, and said, okay, Peter, now what do we do? And you know what Peter said? Peter said, I don't know about you guys, but I'm going fishing. Going fishing. You, you follow me, okay? And then you read about all these disciples' lives. He was constantly rebuking these disciples. You know why? Because they're just a bunch of normal people from Valonia, Arkansas. That's all they were, just normal Joes. But we're thankful that he did, God said, hey, you can't leave these guys by themselves. We've got to have Pentecost. We've got to send the Holy Spirit. Oh, these guys aren't going to make it. And this is the kind of thinking these guys have. They want to know whose fault it is that this man was born blind. Isn't that what a lot of people are consumed with? You'll see people going through struggles even in this church. And there are some of us, no matter how spiritual we are, we're saying, well, you know what? I bet you're just not living for God. I bet you God's, get, God's working on them. You know, maybe they're not tithing. Maybe they're not doing what? What kind of nonsense is that? We're con and I know where they get it because they've got some concept of these Old Testament principles taught in Exodus and Deuteronomy about the sins of the fathers. Well, let me, let's go further than that. For as by one man sin entered the world, it's all Adam's fault. You know, if you want to know who sinned, it's Adam. But they were concerned. I, I guarantee you they had some discussion. This man was born blind. There's some cause here. So they want Jesus to clarify. And they had determined in their minds it either had to be his fault. He was born this way. It's his fault. He came out of the womb. He was blind. Yep, that's his fault. What did he do? You know how asinine that is to even think that way? Well, maybe, ah, it's his parents. It's got to be one of the two. I hate this logical reasoning that disciples got involved in. They had determined there were only two possible answers, and they just wanted to clarify it. We call that the either-or fallacy in logical reasoning. You've done that before. You ever been given options, like take a survey, and you get these choices, and you go A, B, C, D, and you kind of look at them, and you go, I don't like any of those choices. Are you like me? Do you take your pen and you write in a fifth choice? You know? I do that. And somebody says, well, Bob, they can't score. I don't even take exams. I don't like any of these choices. They say, well, they can't score. I don't care. Those are, none of those answers are what I want to put down. I'm going to put my answer down. You know what Jesus said here? Jesus followed that logical. He, remember, he's the master teacher here. Jesus responded, neither this man nor his parents sinned. I had to rock their world, right? You know what I mean? They'd all been debating this. It wasn't one disciple. It says the disciples. And he says neither. But he does give a response. He said, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. See, that was a possible answer. Is it possible, church, that the reason that negative things happen to good people is it's just a chance for God to manifest himself in that situation? For example... Hurricane Katrina. I had some of my bozo friends. I've, I've educated friends too, not all of them, you know, but I do have some educated friends. There are people that said, you know, I was waiting for this to happen. I was wondering when God was going to unleash his wrath upon New Orleans because of their debauchery. I go, I got this scratch in my head. I said, what are you talking about? God's wrath. Have you ever been to Bourbon Street? Yeah, I've been there. Did you see what kind of lifestyle that is? It was just a matter of time before God got them. God, he's, I'm, I'm lost here. Because when I read about God's wrath, I read about instance, instances like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's complete annihilation. There's nothing left. That's how God, when he unleashes his wrath, we'll know it. You know why? Because there's nothing left standing. You go to New Orleans, there was actually a, a tavern never even shut down. Did God miss? Did God kind of, he's just like, well, I just didn't very, do a very good job. I have to try it again later. You follow me? No, no. God, it, that, listen, I think it was just a chance because if you saw what happened after Katrina, you saw churches rally. They came to the aid of Louisiana and Mississippi. Churches were doing rebuilding. So I was thinking, hey, you know why I think that happened? It's a time for God's works to be manifest. You follow me? The reason I say that because in Africa we have a terrible crisis. And you saw it. We live in the epicenter of the AIDS crisis in South Africa. There are more HIV-positive people living in South Africa than anywhere else in the world. Okay? 
And, and I, that's not per capita, that's just sheer numbers. And by the way, we're talking about this coronavirus, this AIDS virus, it's wiping out generations. And yet, it's not on the news anymore, it's kind of old hat, no one talks about it anymore. If you want a crisis and you want to get the media on board and say, hey, we need sheer panic, let's go back and continue to talk about HIV. Let's talk about that virus because it's wiping out Africa. But, you know, it's just kind of old news. Let's just go to, let's talk about Ebola. Let's talk about swine flu. Let's talk about coronavirus. I continue to this day, after 20 years, I continue to talk about the AIDS crisis because there's no cure. It hasn't gone away. And what happens, you still have the senior adults, they're still dying, the, the, the senior citizens, there's still a lot of them there. They're still there, and those children are there, but that middle generation is being wiped out. And someone says, well, you know, because of Africa's lifestyle, and I hear all these things, I said, you've lost your mind. I said, here's why I believe the AIDS crisis has taken place in Africa. Because it's a chance for God's people to do God's work and do the right thing and save Africa. And God's, at, God's moving. Some people say, well, maybe God has forsaken Africa. He hasn't forsaken Africa because he's doing incredible things there. And you know this story in John 9. You know what happens. You know, you know the story about Jesus heals this young man. He never tells this man who he is. He never expects anything. And this man goes out. Now he can see. And like anything that happens good, you always have all these people that are so negative and want to drag the situation down. They don't believe it. They don't believe the miracle took place. And in particular, it's the religious people of that day. You know, that's why I can't stand religion. Someone says, are you a religious person? I said, I've never been religious in my life. And you know what's good is we get corporations that actually are on board with us. And what I find out, like, for example, the Pepsi-Cola Foundation built our first house, you know. Uh, I never ask people for money, but I ask God for wisdom. And so we get money from corporations, we get money from churches. Corporations can never give money to this church because it's a religious organization. But you know what's funny about a lot of those organizations like the Pepsi-Cola Foundation? They can give to Christian organizations. I said, man, that's awesome because I've never been religious in my life. But Christian organizations. And the religious organizations, the people in this day, they refuse to believe this. They said, there's no way that this man was born blind and now he can see as a result of this man. Because this man is a sinner. And they wanted this man to admit, admit today that this man is not of God. They went to his parents. They badgered his parents. His parents, you can imagine, religious leaders in that day, they can do some damage to you. They can kill you. So when they come knocking on your door, it's not like having your pastor show up. Say, who's out there? It's, oh, it's the, it's the Sadducees. It's the, you know, the Pharisees. They're out there. What do they want? I don't know. But whatever you do, don't, don't just, because just, they'll cut your throat. They'll crucify you. And they went to his parents' house and said, this is your son? Yes, it is. He was born blind. Y yes. And now he can see. Are you sure that's him? Well, I can see him getting nervous. They went to him twice. They wanted these parents to say, no, we don't know that. Finally, they said, listen, he's, he's an adult. Go back to him. He can speak for himself. They go back to this man and say, we want you to deny that Jesus is God. And look what he does in verse 20, 25. I love it. These religious leaders pressured him, and he answered in verse 25. He said, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind, and now I see. Now, that's a fact, Jack, right there. You can't argue with those facts. He didn't know who Jesus was. He wasn't going to argue whether he was a sinner, but he says, I was blind, and now I see. Do you see what Jesus had, had done? The reason this man was born blind, church, is that the works of God may be made manifest in him, that and for no other reason. And you saw it happen. We have a young lady. Remember, you gave us seed money years ago. And we would take these children in. And this past December, we had our first high school graduate. Her name is Yanda Shlangwana. Now, I'm going to give you her testimony, and it's going to take about three or four minutes. And let's talk about Ayanda. Do you have her picture up here? Okay. This is Ayanda. Isn't she beautiful? When Ayanda came to us, we weren't, we weren't familiar with her life. You know, when, when social workers come to our children's village, they usually just have a child, and they interview our grannies, because we we, we're, we're not an orphanage. So people say, what do you, we're not an orphanage. We're not an institution. What we do is we build these homes, and we go find foster moms, in particular, African grandmothers. We put them in the home. They're legally placed there. They have a social worker. They take each child and the social worker and the granny to court, and the judge basically uh, 
puts guardianship of these kids with this caregiver, so they're with this caregiver 24-7. They don't get paid a salary, and we as an organization, we provide the housing, utilities, transportation, school fees, yada, yada, yada. We pay for everything else. They do the most critical thing. They raise these children to love Jesus as Zulus, as Kosas, as uh, Saswati-speaking people. Because remember, when Jesus calls missionaries, when missionaries go to South Africa, we don't go to South Africa to change the culture. We go to South Africa to preach the gospel. And what a lot of missionaries do, I think the first thing I see them doing, the first thing they do when they go to South they build a church like this. You understand? A church that fits right here in Valonia. That's not what Jesus asked us to do. Jesus asked us to preach the gospel. And so they have their own culture. They do the way they do church. And, but anyway, so, so this young lady comes to us, and we don't know anything about her. And after a couple years of being with us, Joanna says, have you ever read the case report for Ayanda? You know, they have a case, you know, the, the social worker has it. It says where the child came from, why the child is orphaned, those things. And I said, no, she says, you ought to read it. And I know we, I, I hope we don't have any little rugrats in here, but we have a couple of young kids, so I'll watch the way I say it. But listen, I, I, listen one thing I've learned, you preach the truth. You know, I'm not going to keep my head, on, you know, uh, buried in the sand. When Ayanda was 18 months, now get ready, it's going to be hard to take. When she was 18 months old, she was raped. 18 months old. See, one of the reasons people need the gospel in South Africa is because of this pagan things that, I mean, just unbelievable things that the Sangoma, the Sangoma are these traditional healers. You have witch doctors, Izzy Tagazelos. And what they have done is, I think they stayed up too late one night. I don't know how they come up with this asinine things they come up with. But these witch doctors tell men that if they can have relations with virgins, they can eradicate themselves of HIV. So these men go out and they go, well, who fits this? Who fits this scenario? Who, 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 who's in this class? And they go after children, and in particular, they go after toddlers. And you say, this doesn't happen? Church, please, come on. You don't read about it on CNN or Fox News. It's all because it just happens every day. But this happened to Ayanda, and the perpetrators, I don't know who they are. I don't know how. I just can't imagine this. But they took Ayanda's body, and they disposed of it like a piece of rubbish. Just like we're finished, boom. How many of y'all believe in God's providence? Say amen. Say, I, I, nothing happens by accident. God's providential care is a powerful thing. See, God's still on the throne. I don't care what happens in our society. You look around, you start freaking out, things happen. God is still, he's still in control, believe me. Okay, but sometimes we wonder. Wonder no more. He's, God knew about Ayanda. Now, why he allows these things to happen, I just gave it to you. It's for God's works to be made manifest in her. Now, you say, you mean God would, hey, he's a sovereign God. I don't question God. There's only one person I've learned to question God. His name was uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and it wasn't a good, good outcome. I don't question God. But at that day, God says, Ayanda, her life is not going to end like a piece of rubbish. A police helicopter doing a routine patrol over the area of our city where we live, one of the pilots spotted her lifeless body. Can you imagine how difficult that is for a pilot, a, a, a police pilot? And by the way, I'm inferring a lot of things because we just read in a report. I would have loved to have met these pilots. I would love to talk to them. This is years later, but a, a police pilot fought. They landed the helicopter. They grabbed a Yonda who's 18 months old. They put her in that helicopter and they took her to a hospital. At the hospital, did some minor surgery. She recovered. And then the social worker, some police, you know, they go back into the community. They know where they found her. They take a Yonda, 18-month-old, and say, whose child is this? And Joanna, I tell you, once that's happened to a child and they know it, even if the parent sees that child, they're not going to claim that child because that child has been, uh, uh, I don't know what the, it's, I don't want to use the words, but they don't want that child anymore. Because that child is dirty. That child is filthy now. That child is, is, is not worthy to be taken into our homes. I would just hope maybe the mother wasn't there present. But the social worker goes in the community. We know you know who this child belongs to. No one comes forward. So they have no other recourse but to put that child into uh, social services custody. And from there, they put her in foster care. And from foster care... She's about seven years old, and she was in a foster family where the mother was sick. 
the foster moms. So they said, you know what? There's an organization that just got here a few years ago called the Children's Resiliency Project. They have a children's village located near our city. Why don't we give them a, a call? So the social worker calls us, talks to Joanna, and we said, no, we have, we have a place. So they bring Ayanda, she's about seven years old, and, and uh, the social worker's with Ayanda. And the way we work it is we call, tell our, one of our caregivers we have a prospective child. Meet with the child, and if you want the child, we'll make arrangements. So she meets her grandmother. And the grandmother and the social worker and Ayanda go into her house, you've seen those type of houses, and they do a little interview process. After it's over, we don't interfere. We don't tell the grannies what to, you know, these, these grannies are the legal guardians. We, we are the resource for them to do what they do. After the meeting, she comes to us and she says, I want that child. So we said, that's easy. So we call the social worker, they go to court. Next thing you know, Ayanda's uh, placed in the custody of, of her granny. And she starts, some things start happening. She starts seeing how we love her and how we want the best for her. See, we are living the gospel and in, the, in turn, she's also hearing the gospel because she goes to church, a Bible-believing church just like this First Baptist Church, except it's a Zulu church. So everything's spoken in Zulu, but it's still the Word of God. She starts hearing of things. She starts hearing about things like eternal life. And in particular, she hears something that to most of us, it's not a big deal. Maybe it should be, but it's not. Can you imagine what an orphan and abandoned child hears when they hear the Word of God talk about a heavenly father? A father who will never leave you nor forsake you. As an orphan child, I can't imagine what, because my, my mom and dad are still living. But she hears about things like that. And about, you can receive him and you can be, actually become a child of the father. And so at about age 10, I get a knock on our door. We live at the children's village, Joanna and I. We hear a knock on the door and it's the granny and it's a yonder. It's this lady right here. She's about 10 years old at the time. Am I right about that, Joanna? 10. She's about 10 years old. And uh, the granny says, uh, they call us mommy and daddy by default. They have grannies and aunties and things like that, but by default we became mommy and daddy. So the granny says, daddy, Ayanda wants to talk to you about something. I said, well, come in, Ayanda, have a seat. And there in my living room, I shared the plan of salvation with her, how she could receive Jesus Christ as her Savior and by receiving him become a child of the King. And there in my living room, she professed that day, like most of us need to do, especially in Africa. Now, I know we have this concept in America about asking Jesus in your heart. We found that in Africa, people ask Jesus in their heart, but it doesn't really mean anything to them. We can get, we can get Hindus to do it. But when you get somebody to profess that Jesus is Lord, oh, that's a big, that's a big thing there. Uh, because if you do that in Bologna, Arkansas, people say, well, praise the Lord. Jesus is Lord. You do that in central regions of Africa, you better look over your shoulder, you profess that Jesus is Lord. But there in my living room, Ayanda professes that Jesus is Lord. And in her heart, she believed that God raised his son Jesus from the dead. And there, she became a child of God and she was saved. And then from that point on, a few weeks later, she was baptized. And she, after following the Lord, believers baptized, she began to profess that I was blind and now I see. And here's the reason. His name is Jesus Christ. And she began to profess her faith in the schools that she would go to, in, the, in her assignments. And even her teacher would say, you know what? What we've learned about Ayanda more than anything else is she loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, I just wanted you to see a picture of it. This is her senior prom. We don't call them proms. What do we call them? We call them a trick dance or whatever. This is her Getting ready, getting ready for that dance. And I get to thinking, I could have, church, I could have looked the other way. I could have said, I'm not going to, I'm going to ignore the numbers and I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to resist the urge. I'm going to look away and I'm going to go back to the United States and I'm going to live my life. I'm going to be a basketball coach. I'm going to teach college. I'm going to be a college and career pastor at my church and life is going to be okay. But we didn't. And as a result, She's our first high school graduate. She's in college right now, and she wants to be a school teacher. Can you imagine this young lady teaching your children at your school? Because this is what it's all about. And so church, this morning, we're going to give an invitation. I don't know what the Lord has spoken to you. I'm, I'm just sharing my heart. 
Because, like I said, years ago, people, many people like this church said, Bob, we're going to give you seed money. And, if you, and a lot of them are like my friends. Bob, you better not squander this money because I'll come get you. But they gave us enough money to build houses and buy property and buy vehicles so that we can go over there and sow that seed. And church, all I'm telling you this morning is that this is some of the fruit. And so if you've ever given a dime to faith promise in this church, be glad. You know why? Because God has an accountant. You know, he has a CPA. He does. I've never read about it in scripture, but God knows all. And when we stand before Jesus Christ to give an account of our lives to him, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. You may have forgotten that time when you gave to faith promise. You may have forgotten. You may have become old, senile, and, you know, you say, I don't remember. Believe me, God's CPA remembers. And when you stand before Jesus Christ to give an account of your life, he's going to have it all written down. And all, all of us ever want this to be said is for Jesus Christ to look at you, not because of who we are, because we're zeros with the circle rubbed out, but because of who he is. To look at us at, the, at this judgment seat of Christ and look down upon all of us believers and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Isn't that what we want? And so church this morning, I'm grateful. And Joanna is grateful because you had faith in us. And, and we went and planted seed and now here's just a little bit of the fruit. All of our kids have incredible stories. But that's her story. And one day, maybe if you go to South Africa, maybe, because I told her one day they're going to write books about you, Yonda, because I've never met anybody that's ever started their life the way you, your life has started. And you'll be able to help people one day. Now, she tells me, Daddy, I can't do that. And I said, why not, Yonda? She said, it makes me feel dirty. I said, okay, I, I understand, I understand. But one day, one day you're going to have the courage because you, you're going to see the need. You're going to see a lot of women out there, especially in Africa, who have been abused and been raped and been set aside. And you can tell them about your life. And that, that, that may be the way your life starts, but that's not the way your life has to end. And so we rejoice this morning. So as we pray and as Brother James comes forward, we're just going to go to the Lord in prayer. I don't know what the Lord has been doing. I don't know why you came to church today. I hope you didn't come to hedge your bed. I hope you came to get motivated to do things for God. But as we close our eyes and we can stand, and Brother James, you come forward and you give the invitation. I just want you to say, hey, Lord, there's still time to put seed in the ground. And, Lord, give me, give me the wisdom that it takes to go out and not just plant seed uh, in South Africa, but plant seed in our own neighborhoods. Because we know that there are people just in Valonia and Conway and Little Rock that need the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if the Lord has pressed on you to make any type of public profession, now is the time to do it. If there's private, I'm sure that there are many people in this church can take you aside in a private room, and, and maybe you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe I just talked over your head. You don't know anything. You've never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can do all that today. But whatever you do, do not leave this church the same way you left when you came. Well, amen.